Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the latest episode of On San Francisco, the San Francisco Chronicle podcast on the people and politics making headlines in the city by the bay. I'm Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and I'm here with several of our best political minds way past midnight to chat about the election results, both state and local. There's definitely a lot to talk about. It is election night at the San Francisco Chronicle, and the returns are in, or at least most of them, enough of them that some of uh, the preeminent experts in California politics are ready to weigh in. I'm John Diaz, the editorial page editor for the San Francisco Chronicle, and with me is... Hi, I'm Heather Knight, a columnist working out of City Hall. I'm Joe Garofoli, the senior political writer at the Chronicle. I'm Dominic Fracasa, a uh, City Hall reporter in San Francisco. I'm John Wildermuth. I'm a political writer for the Chronicle. Let's get started at the statewide level. Uh, Joe Garofoli, uh, a very good night for Gavin Newsom, was it not? A very good night for Gavin Newsom and a very good night for John Cox. And what we learned tonight is that for the next five months, we'll be talking about Donald Trump a lot. Uh, Newsom is going to paint Cox as a tool of Trump, as he called him, a foot soldier in Trump's army tonight. And uh, Cox's retort is, hey, the Democrats have made California uh, a mess. We have the uh, more uh, people in poverty than any part of the sta- any part of any state in the union, and there's homelessness everywhere. And so that's what we're going to see. It's all about Trump, and it's all about the Democrats making a mess. You know, Joe Garofoli, I want to uh, get you and John Wildermuth to weigh in on this. It wasn't so long ago that there was a lot of nervousness among California Republicans and hope among California Democrats that there might not be a Republican on the statewide ticket. Well, that's not the case. We still have a two-party state here. Yeah, I don't know if I'd go quite so far as to say two parties. Party and a half? Party and a half, maybe. Because, again, you know, if you look at the governor's race, there's a reason that Gavin Newsom wanted to run against uh, John Cox. It's because uh, right now he can start measuring drapes in, uh, in, the, uh, in Sacramento because it is, there hasn't been a Republican on a statewide, win a statewide race in California in eight years. No, At 2006. Least, 2006 was yeah. the last yeah. one. And you're not going to find anybody that's going to say that this is going to be the year that's going to change. No. Uh, not when there's one out of every four voters as a Republican, not when Trump's approval rating is, what, 30% here, 33%, and, and when there's, there's no money. I mean, John Cox is a wealthy man, but he's just spent, what, four million bucks? Five million. Five million bucks. He thrust, toss him at the end. Uh, and, you know, how much more is he going to have to spend? Because there's nothing coming from the party. And there's, and, and there's no great return on investment if you're a Republican uh, donor here. So the, the main point that Cox serves for the Republican Party is to have someone at the top of the ticket for, to get sort of a baseline interest among Republican voters. They'll come out and they'll say, well, at least I have someone to vote for for governor. But, you know, know. as far as Republicans and Republican donors are concerned, their job is done. Their job was to get John Cox into the uh, top two, into the November election. 
now that he's in the November election, they don't think he's going to win, and they're certainly not going to try and put up mon enough money to l give him a shot at winning. So it's going to be all him all the time. If you're listening to this uh, early Wednesday morning, I, I suspect by now Donald Trump will have tweeted his uh, self-congratulations that he, he was the one who put John Cox over the he, top. He finally won one. You know, he's, he's the last <laughs> in couple California. races in California of all places, and, and the last few races he's weighed in nationally, uh, the candidates got their ass kicked. Uh, of so. course, on remember, we're a top two state, so second place is as good as a win. I want to get back to some of these other really interesting uh, statewide races. But first, here in San Francisco, we have the marquee race being the mayor's race. Heather Knight, tell us how it's going. It's been a really interesting night on that front. At first, it looked like London Breed was running away with it. She all night has had about 35 or 36 percent of the first choice votes. And Mark Leno and Jane Kim were pretty far back in the um, low and mid-20s. However, by the end of the night, the Department of Elections ran um, ranked choice voting on all of the results they've gotten back so far. There are still thousands left to go, so there's certainly no definitive answer. But our latest... Um, results are that Mark Leno seems to be winning. He, as of the latest count, has 50.42% after ranked choice voting is done, and London Breed has 49.58. So you can tell it's super close, super tight. There are still thousands of votes to count, so we definitely don't know which of the two of them will win. Interestingly, you could tell on these reports what happened with all of the other candidates as they dropped out one by one, and not surprisingly, Jane Kim was the last candidate to drop out. And you can tell what happened with her votes once they're redistributed. Um, about 25,000 of them went to Mark Leno, as she had directed her supporters to do, and 7,500 went to Breed. So Mark Leno really benefited from Jane Kim's second choice votes. But like I say, it's definitely too soon to tell who our next mayor is. Dominic, you want to give us a quick uh, summation of how ranked choice works? I know you've done it for the newspaper and there still is confusion among voters on yeah i mean ranked choice voting is also called uh, of course instant runoff an instant runoff system it's a little bit of a misnomer because it could take days for us to finally you know work out the end result um so a bit of an irony there but yeah i mean ranked choice voting is meant in part to uh, avoid costly runoff elections uh, that often you know don't get the the kind of turnouts that you know you, you, kind of big turnouts that people like to see and, and they cost a lot of money to run so the system is in place in part, essentially what it does is allows um, a redistribution of votes. It allows uh, voters to pick their first, second, and third choices um, for whatever office you're seeking or whatever office is up for grabs. Um, and then through a, a, a system of um, elimination, a process of elimination, the bottom vote getters in any, uh, on any slate of ballots are eliminated and their votes are redistributed up the, up the line a little bit. Let's jump back to statewide races. Joe and John, any surprises that, that you saw? What surprises have, that I can think of at this point? Um, well, actually, the there's, there is one thing. We actually have a, uh, an independent oh, voter. yes, yes. An independent surprise, candidate yes, is uh, going to be on the statewide ballot. Yes. Uh, Steve Poisner is running for insurance commissioner. He uh, was elected insurance commissioner once as a Republican. He's running as independent, and last I checked, he was the leading uh, the leading vote getter. Yeah, yeah, and he was. Um, now he's a he's a sort of a unique case because he's a very wealthy guy who could you know sp spending a lot out of his own pocket on this. He sold his company for a billion dollars to Qualcomm, 
Um, he's held the office before, and he has some name recognition. So I mean, it's not necessarily a case for you know, we should all be you know running out in the streets and uh, and looking for independent candidates because Poisoner's sort of a, uh, a one of a kind. But it's definitely gonna be it's definitely a, a marker. I mean, because it says, hey, you know, this guy who was the could wanted to be the Republican standard bearer for governor in California saying, screw in them. Yeah, yeah. Screw them. Not that, not that long ago. I, I don't want to be part of the party. I'm going to be an independent. And he's winning. Poisoner will always hold a paw spot in my heart, though, because uh, he's a rich guy. He decided he wanted to run for office. And the first office he ran for was assembly in the peninsula. Yes. Unlike everybody else who wants to be governor <laughs> or senator the first time out. Amen. Amen. I thought one of the surprises of the night was Kevin DeLeon. Uh, he is... Uh, Last I saw was locked in a very tight race for the number two spot. And last I saw, he was in single digits. And and this was there was supposed to be this big suggestion that the Democrats were moving left, uh, and he certainly was positioning himself that way against Feinstein. That's Wasn't that's so yeah, good. absolutely. I, though I think he will bump up. We were talking about this earlier because when the LA County votes come in, which probably will be in another three or four months, um, <laughs> he'll he'll do a lot better there um, because that's his home base and a lot of Latino voters there. Um, but uh, yeah, and it's like that begs the larger question: you know, where's the resistance? You know, uh, we're, we'll be looking the next couple of days. Where are all these you know liberal candidates coming out? Where was all the street energy? Where you know did did the resistance turn out the voters that they promised? Well, I wrote about that issue in San Francisco. The turnout is expected to just be terrible. Um, they're projecting maybe mid-30s to lower 40s, and it's going to be probably half of what it was when Donald Trump was elected just a year and a half well, ago. Well, so. that's not unusual, though, because that's a presidential election and everything. And I think one of the reasons is, you know, Donald Trump wasn't on the, wasn't on the ballot today. So a lot of the people say, well, you know, Trump, we'd come out with Trump, but not, which as Joe said, is why the Democrats are going to put Trump on the ballot, whether his name's there or not, come November. Yeah, it was funny. Even some local ballot measures were sending out mailers with Trump's face on them that had nothing to do with the issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I really received several in my mailbox with Trump's face, just so. <laughs> you had a really good piece about that, Heather, uh, on sfchronicle.com, for those who missed it. Dominic, what do you think? Why do you think uh, turnout was, was less than... One might expect. Yeah, I think in large part for the reasons that John mentioned, there wasn't a, a enormous catalyst, a, a um, sort of um, a tsunami of political will pushing people, you know, to, to go vote today. I think that has a lot to do with it. And I think, as Heather, you've mentioned before as well, the ballot measures uh, in San Francisco, the local measures didn't really strike anybody's fancy. I, I think a lot of them appeared to people as wonky. I mean, what would you say, Heather, the most politically charged one, the taser ballot measure, perhaps, or maybe the, the, the tobacco, uh, uh, banning flavored tobacco? Yeah. I mean, those were more... I mean, it's pretty sad when your most interesting ballot measure is whether to ban flavored tobacco. It's not to say that they're not important, but I don't think that they were the kind of uh, political ballot measures that will drive people to, to you know, to Although the Although R.J. Reynolds' own. tobacco company did drop $11 million on that race. Not well spent. Lost. Not well spent. No. Yeah. You have well, to wonder how big tobacco still has all that money to spend on a campaign, <laughs> given how fewer and fewer people are smoking, but... Uh, my gosh, they certainly, I, I, I think there's no question they were worried about the president if uh, San Francisco. Well, the other uh, thing about turnout, though, is that uh, one is primaries never, you never get the turnout you in the general election. But one of the reasons is there were so many candidates for so many of these races. And like one consultant said to me, the way you get people out is you have two people, good versus evil. 
and you say, this guy's terrible, the world will end if he's elected, and the other guy says the same, you get people on each side saying, oh, we got to stop this, and they troop to the polls. And that's not the way it is when you have, what, 32 candidates for uh, Senate, and how many for governor? Oh, 27, uh, I think, yeah. I, th- there, there is some... some uh, movement and changes, and at least in the dynamic of the voters who are coming out, the early returns we're seeing are, um, I was talking to someone from a pollster with Latino Decisions, which l- really uh, looks at the Latin- number of Latino voters, and they're saying um, Democratic turnout in some of these congressional races, like in Orange County, is up 10 points. Uh, and uh, that's that's saying something in some of these conser- more traditionally conservative counties. So, and uh, they are attributing that to a little bit of a bump in the uh, Latino turnout. But um, yeah, I, I, I know, I, we had this discussion on our, our, our Slack channel, and I, I, I'm, this is where I, I feel like I'm such a um, you know, bleeding heart, where I'm like, why aren't people voting? These are, these are, these are you know, you, you think with all the excitement in the air at some level, but then I, I, I guess I'm living in a bubble or something. <laughs> well, I think that's actually particularly salient in the mayor's race, because as it's been said before, whoever wins this election has a good chance to be the mayor of San Francisco for the next 10 years. Yeah. And we weren't the only ones reporting that. I mean, that was, a, that was you know, f- flung out there pretty far and wide during this election. Of course, we're talking about the power of the incumbency in San Francisco, and this race will finish out Mayor Ed Lee's term, which would have ended in January of 2020. But then there's going to be another race after that for, uh, for the next full term. Um, and that, uh, that person has, stands a real chance to stay in office for a long time. So, I mean, to your point, I, I really don't understand why people didn't. And there are so many pressing issues in the city. I feel like just in the past few months, it's really been a tipping point with homelessness, needles on the ground, feces, 10 encampments. Um, just the expense of everything, the fact that you can't buy a house for less than $1.5 million despite what's right on the sidewalk outside. And I just feel like if this was a time that could have been really exciting to drive voters to the polls to demand change at City Hall, and they just didn't go. Well, to John's to John's point, there was, at least in the San Francisco mayor's race, there wasn't that dynamic of good versus evil. In fact, we struggled for months to, to really try to, to pin the candidates down on what did separate them and put a little daylight in between their policies, whether that was transportation or homelessness or their relationship with, you know, the city's largest industry, the tech industry. It, it, was, it wasn't an easy task to do, and, and maybe that kept some folks Even home. the things they brought up, like, let's get um, super PAC money out of elections, which was Mark Leno's big thing. Um, he ended up taking it, and so did Jane Kim. Everybody benefited from it, so there wasn't even any difference on that. Yeah, the the I mean, I think the the notion of independent expenditure committees and super PAC spending cast a shadow over the entire mayor's race. And it's not to say that money in politics isn't very important, but I mean, this the race ended up being about the spending of of super PACs, which candidates are legally forbidden. From, from colluding with mm-hmm. in any way, shape, or form. So, and Mark Leno got over $100,000 in independent expenditure committee. Jane Kim got over well, well over $300,000 the last time I checked. London Breed was, you know, in the millions. I, what, what are you going to do about that? Yeah. What do you, you... We, we had a uh, USF professor, James Taylor, in a little Love earlier him. in studio. And uh, his, the first words out of his mouth when we were asking about the election is, is that Gavin Newsom's presidential campaign has begun <laughs> for 2020. And and what do you guys think? I mean, at well, first I thought it was kind of preposterous. Then I'm looking back historically. Yes, exactly. Ron, Ronald Reagan elected oh, California absolutely. governor in 66. Two years later, he runs for president. Jerry Brown elected California governor in 74. 
two years later, runs for president, puts up a fairly and, incredible campaign. And how did that turn out, though? I mean, and that's, it's funny. I was... Uh, in, in both cases, I, each of those were on the, on the national scene and remained on the national scene. Yeah. Reagan's case, he became president. I was right, right on, the, uh, on the campaign bus with uh, Gavin uh, last week. And that's one of the questions we asked him. And he actually started laughing at this. He said, you know, hey, I want to be governor of California. And he, in so many words, said that he absolutely had no intention of running for anything. Now, sure, that's every candidate you ever talk to <laughs> will say that. And the governor, a governor or a senator from California, the day they're elected, they become a potential pr presidential candidate. You saw that but with Kamala Harris. still, if I'm Gavin, I look at what happened to Jerry when he ran two years in. It was... It was a terrible thing. He, you know, he ran, and it was hard to ever recover after that. And I would be inclined to think he would be looking at that. Then again, the other, there's Newsom's history, who you know was running for governor before he ran for lieutenant governor, <laughs> then almost instantly started running for governor again. Um, so you know, I, I, I'm, this will be you know Taylor is right in that this will immediately become the talk, certainly with the national media. They, they love Newsom. They love Kamala Harris. They love to play the parlor games. And this will be the chatter on MSNBC for well, the next Newsom's biggest um, supporters have been encouraging him to seek the White House for oh, years yeah. and years yeah. and well, years. Just That's the always size been of, the plan. Yeah. The yeah. size of California makes it, you know, it gives you a level of name recognition, which, of course, Newsom had going into it. But let's not forget Barack Obama, junior senator from Illinois, you know, barely finds out where the coat closet is in the, the Senate offices, and he's running for president, becomes president. So, um, you know, Joe, when you put up your winners and losers, does Kamala Harris end up in the losers category that you might have a little competition now? Oh, between, oh, from tonight? Yeah. No, no, I still think, no, she's, she's still, uh, she's actually far ahead in terms of making national outreach and trying to, uh, uh, created sort of a national network. I mean, Newsom yeah. has nothing in that level, so he would. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go there. She's still sort of on track for 2020. <laughs> um, but, one thing would, I think we should, you know, in terms of generating excitement, maybe for the fall, um, is to think about how sanctuary state is going to be a big policy, um, or a big topic of conversation. The Republicans are going to push that as, you know, this is this is a, one of the ruins of. Uh, uh, of California and uh, Cox is going to be all over that. That's going to be in the congressional races. That's going to be in the other statewide races. Um, and so the Democrats are going to have to defend that. And uh, this is, this is Republicans believe and their pollsters say that this is an issue that Republican voters really take to their heart. They feel it's a law and they're going to cast it as sort of a, a safety issue. You know, these MS-13 is running around everywhere. And um, so that's something to keep in mind here. The other thing you're going to see in November is uh, there's going to be almost certainly a ballot initiative to repeal the transportation tax. And Republicans are already saying, this is what's going to bring our voters out there. And uh, John Cox has said on day one, I'm going to pull that sucker and it's going to be done and we'll never see it again if I'm governor. Newsom, on the other hand, has come out and said, we need this. This is the only place we're going to get the money uh, to do this sort of uh, road repairs and everything else and infrastructure work that we need. So that's going to be something that you're going to be, you know, see both sides really button heads on. Back on the sanctuary issue, when I interviewed <clears throat> Gavin Newsom for a column a couple of weeks ago, I asked him um, if you become governor, which it appears he will, um, what is 
an early crazy thing you would do, like um, marry same-sex couples at City Hall, like you did uh, just weeks into your time as mayor here in San Francisco against state law. And he said it would definitely be about fighting President Trump on immigration policy, and he wouldn't be more specific than that, but he said it would be audacious, which is one of his favorite words. Why did I know that <laughs> word was going to come out? Well, the one does. thing that he said again in that same bus ride is that he has no problem with using the word, sanctu- the word sanctuary state. Yeah. You know, which a lot of Democrats have tried to back away from. He says it is what it is. He and also told me he really admired Oakland Mayor Libby Schaaf's move to warn her residents of impending ICE raids. So it sounded like he might be willing to do something like that on a statewide level. Would he be willing to go to jail, though? Well, <laughs> As Libby, Sha- <laughs> Libby Schaaf said she was. That could start his presidential campaign. <laughs> That's audacious. Being jailed as governor, you know, in your first week. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Heather, let me ask uh, you and Dominic about uh, the judicial races here in San Francisco. Uh, it was interesting, uh, the public defend- four public defenders challenging four incumbent judges. Um, a lot of the legal community, not just judges, but uh, even civil rights attorneys really rallied around the incumbents, considering a matter of judicial uh, independence. Looks like those judges have survived. Yeah, um- all of the public defenders lost their bid, and um, I think that is telling about you know making judicial seats not particularly political. But I also think um, San Franciscans already feel like their judges are too liberal. They're, um, I hear countless stories of drug dealers being arrested and immediately released on their own recognizance again and again. Um, and so I feel like voters didn't want to put even more liberal judges on the seat. Anything else, Dominic, that you saw of interest on the San Francisco ballot? How did uh, the, the two tax measures yeah, go on commercial rents? Those were perhaps the most interesting to me, and I'm just bringing up that data data right now. Um, I mean, we talk about homelessness being perhaps the single biggest issue in San Francisco right now, and yet voters decided they did not want to uh, levy a uh, uh, or raise, I should say, a uh, gross receipt tax, basically a, a larger tax on commercial landlords um, to fund about $70 million a year uh, for homelessness and housing initiatives in San Francisco. So that was Proposition D. It needed a supermajority, uh, two-thirds uh, to pass, and that did not make it today. Um, Proposition C um, kind of painted in some ways as a, as a competing measure, also going after the gross receipt tax, uh, would have been a much more dramatic uh, lift on that tax. Um, looks like it's going to squeak by. That needed just um, just over a 50% threshold, uh, and it looks like it got that just by, I mean, just by the skin of its teeth. Um, that measure was championed by um, Jane Kim, supervisor and mayoral candidate. Um, so, and then that, of course, uh, is meant to uh, fund a number of early childhood um, uh, programs and initiatives, and I believe even um, fund uh, fund things along those lines, early yeah. child care, and and um, which, of course, is, is extremely important for another big issue in San Francisco, which is raising families in, a, in an exorbitantly expensive city. Um, so that's it's, and, but that was really, really close. Um, there's still a lot of votes out there to count. That's right. That's and absolutely right. I'm pretty sure that's one that, uh, if it does pass, the next stops the courthouse on something like that. Yeah. Another race I think we should mention, which doesn't fit strictly in San Francisco or the state, but is um, Judge Aaron Persky, yes. Persky, who was recalled, first judge to be recalled in California since 1932. He was the judge who sentenced Brock Turner, the swimmer at Stanford, to just three months in jail. Um, after the sexual assault outside a frat house there, and voters were just livid, and they recalled him today. Yeah, that was certainly one where judicial independence was raised, but at the same time, 
boy, what a difficult defense for that judge to, even though he apparently was in, well within the parameters of the law and the probation recommendation, but that's a tough case to defend. Yeah. The folks who were bringing that recall vote, they had to sustain the momentum for that. And obviously, it's a it's a visceral case, you know, where that that stems from a visceral kind of um, a sentencing issue. Um, but they had to sustain the momentum for that for many, many. I mean, I think over the course of over a year, they needed to to keep um, attention on that and mm-hmm. to keep. It people... was a real long shot in the beginning. It yeah. really was. Yeah. It really was, and not just because of the judicial independence considerations. I mean, it was just a, a matter of uh, uh, keeping attention and momentum going on that. And no question, they got a lift from the Me Too movement, which came along in the intervening time. Absolutely. Yeah, I just tweeted out when the Chronicle called that race, thought it would just pass, not particularly noticed, but it's just being retweeted over and over again with the Me Too, you know, symbol on Twitter. I think women are just really pleased with this result. One other issue in San Francisco on on kind of the the legal front was a a measure to um, uh, provide uh, free legal assistance to anyone in the city facing eviction. Again, people talk about the um, the issue of people being kicked out of their uh, of their homes, of their uh, apartments, not knowing what uh, what resources and what recourses they have to deal with that. Uh, that was Proposition F in San Francisco. Again, John, as John said, a lot of votes left to count here at uh, uh, just after midnight, uh, or I guess in the early morning of Tuesday. Um, but that is uh, ahead uh, by about 56 to 44 percent. Um, it's interesting. There is also a uh, competing piece of legislation currently sort of working its way through the Board of Supervisors. I shouldn't say competing. It seeks to do the same thing. Um, but uh, there's an argument there, as there often is in situations like this, where you go to the ballot box to to uh, do something, and you're going to have to go to the ballot box when you want to tweak those things as well. So that could come up um, uh, uh, later on. But voters uh, apparently saw saw a need to do that, to provide, again, free legal counsel for anybody uh, facing eviction in, the, in an effort to crack down on people losing their homes. Yeah, that was certainly an interesting one, given that it would, regardless of the situation, the roommate, the tenant from hell would also be be covered uh, uh, by with with taxpayer funds. Let, let's close. Joe Garofoli, how is it looking for the Democrats in those congressional seats that they're hoping to flip down? I'm going to defer to the big man on this one. He was following this all night. The uh, the House races. Well, the, the big man, by the way, is John. John Waterman. Yes, for, yes. For those at home, who yes, are <laughs> the theater of the mind we've created for you here. For the uh, the Democrats were uh, right now their plans, and they've been almost since the day that uh, Trump was elected, is that they were going to overturn seats. They were going to flip uh, Republican seats and take command of the uh, House again, and the road to that ran right through California. What they thought originally is there are seven seats in California where Hillary, seven Republican-held seats in California, where Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump uh, in 2016. And they're saying, well, there's, if that's the case, there's no reason we can't do that now. And it was so, such a strong move that at least two of the, uh, two of the longtime uh, Republican congressmen, Ed Royce and uh, Daryl Issa down in Orange County in San Diego, decided they'd rather retire than face the type of fight they, they'd get. But they ran into what's called top two. And it turned out that uh, the Republicans brought candidates in, not only an incumbent, but other, can- other Republican candidates. And the Democrats were very worried that they were going to end up shut out of some of these uh, districts, most of which are in Southern California. As of, say, midnight tonight, that hasn't happened. Uh, the Republican incumbents 
won all, are leading in all their seats. Uh, the open seats are have a Republican in uh, first place, but uh, right now Democrats are runners up in every single one of those uh, seats. And in top two, second is as good as first because it means you're going to be out there in November. And so right now the uh, Democratic hopes are still uh, where they were, and they're thinking we can do it in California. And as, and as we were talking about uh, earlier before we came in, if you tally up the Democratic votes in these races – they outnumber the Republican votes. Like in Dana Rohrbacher down in uh, <clears throat> Orange County, he's been in office for 30 years. He's a eccentric. It is eccentric candidate. Yes, iconoclastic. We, like, yeah, we can we can you can check the clips on that and SF Chronicle. We have some great video of him. Uh, but he and then uh, Jeff Denham. He got 30 uh, percent of the vote. Jeff Turner, uh, Jeff Denham, and Turlock got I think 37 or 38 percent of the vote. Yeah, that's so. I mean, that's trouble. That's that trouble is time. Really, a concern for yeah. uh, Republicans. So the good news for all of us is it looks like we're going to have more competitive elections down the line. There's a reason for all of us to keep coming to work <laughs> between now and November. And I want to thank y'all. Really good discussion and a really interesting election. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on On San Francisco. Thank you to Brittany Shell for producing the episode and to Fernando Diaz for editing it. Follow all of our election coverage and read my columns at sfchronicle.com. <laughs>